This morning we're going to consider faith and hope in God. Faith and hope in God. Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 21 through to 25. Let's turn to that now. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read from verse 21. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth for ever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth for ever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Last week we considered, amongst other things, being redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, whom God foreordained before the foundation of the world to be the sacrificial lamb. Something that was decided before God even said, let there be light. In fulfilment of that decree, when Jesus started his public ministry, about 30 years of age, John the Baptist heralded his coming with the words, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. About three years after that, the Lamb of God poured out his precious blood and laid down his life at the cross, bearing away in his own body the sins of all he came to save. About 700 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied about the sacrificial death of Jesus when he said in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through to 8, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. That reference to the lamb of God there. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. It speaks of the Lord laying upon him the iniquity of us all the collective iniquity of all who trust in Jesus. Christians are people who praise God for sending his only begotten son as a sacrificial lamb into the world to redeem sinners with his precious blood at the cross. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? We praise God for that. But it doesn't end there. If if that was it, that would not be enough. Praising God for Jesus dying on a cross as he poured out his blood. Christians also rejoice in that they have a risen saviour. 
the gospel of Christ would certainly not be good news if Jesus remained dead, but the fact is he is alive. And that takes us to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 21, where it is written, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Don't be surprised if you hear me preaching this one at Easter. As I was writing it, I thought this is wonderful um, material for an Easter sermon. There is, o- <clears throat> there is overwhelming evidence in the Bible that Jesus rose victorious from the dead on the third day. It's not just mentioned here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 21 that he was raised. Various places in the Bible. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that Peter was the first of the apostles to see the risen Saviour, after which over 500 people saw him all at the same time. That's just one of the references. Also, despite the so-called Jehovah's Witness organisation teaching that, yeah, Jesus rose, but he only rose spiritually. And oh, by the way, Jesus, when he rose spiritually, he's actually the, um, arch- uh, the, arch- the archangel Michael. But the man Jesus is dead, forever dead. That was the announcement and the declaration, the doctrine of the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, that the man Jesus is dead, forever dead. So they, they kind of accepted a spiritual raising of Jesus, but certainly not a bodily resurrection of Jesus. However, what does the Bible say? What say of the scriptures? After his resurrection from the dead, he appeared to his apostles in a room, but Thomas was not in that room at the time. When the others told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, Thomas didn't believe it. However, Jesus appeared a second time to his apostles in that room when Thomas was there. And Jesus said to him, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Clearly, Jesus was risen bodily. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. Well, Christians are people who do believe that the incarnate Son of God poured out his blood, laid down his life to redeem them, and that he rose bodily from the dead. As such, they are people who, even though they have not seen Jesus, they are nevertheless blessed, and they are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Looking at verse 21 again. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. This verse speaks of faith in God. 
Amazingly, there are people who say that there is no God. Well, they are fools. The Bible calls them fools. They are fools because God has made himself clearly known to all of us. He has done so in the things he has created and he has done so in that he has um, he has put his laws into our hearts and our conscience, it accuses us or excuses us because God has given all of us the work of his laws. Even if we can't uh, say what the commandments of God are, we nevertheless know instinctively right from wrong. God has made it that way, made us that way. Even so, many people forsake God and they worship the gods of their sinful imagination and they worship gods that they have um, crafted with their own hands. For example, the ancient Jews, they sacrificed their children to uh, an idol called Baal. In Jeremiah chapter 19 and verse 5, the Lord said to them, to the Jews, They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. It never occurred to God that they would do such things. They forsook God, the fountain of living water, and they digged for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, and they sacrificed their children to those gods. It seems amazing, doesn't it? Very wicked, but also you think, well, how could they do such a thing? Still happens today, doesn't it? Are we any different today? God has declared himself in the things he has made and the works of the law that he has put in our hearts. What do people do? They still sacrifice their children to false gods. The God of convenience. The God of irresponsibility. The God of this world, the devil. And they do this in abortion mills across the world. Nothing has changed. This leads us to consider who the only true God really is. And that reminds me of something that happened many years ago. I was listening to a friend of mine, when I, um, a missionary friend of mine, and he had a ministry to Muslims. And I was becoming a little bit concerned about the soft language that he chose to use in his evangelism to Muslims when he spoke about God. And in the end, I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. No reason why I should have done. And I said to him, "Tell is there a, is the God of the, is the God of Christians any different to the God of Muslims, or are they one and the same God?" And not altogether to my surprise, he said, "Well, that's a very difficult question to answer." 
But it's not a difficult question to answer. It really ought not to be a, a difficult question to answer. As far as I'm concerned, it's not difficult. What about you? If I ask you, the God of the Muslims, is it the same God that Christians worship? When you look at verse 21, you can see that Christians believe in God that raised Jesus up from the dead and gave him glory. That is the God whom Christians worship. That means believing in God who raised up the Lord Jesus Christ bodily after he redeemed sinners with his own blood as the Lamb of God, as we have already considered last week. That is most certainly not something that Muslims believe. Also, as can be seen in verse 21, God gave Jesus glory. They gave him, God gave Jesus glory. In other words, God highly exalted Jesus. And Jesus is now seated in heaven at the right hand of God. As it is written in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through to 22. He raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and have put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church. Just want to check something there. Probably not the time to do it. Yeah, okay. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through to 13, the Apostle John said the following about the heavenly vision that he had. This is what John said. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. When you consider that heavenly scene with the risen Saviour and no one else, not Moses, not Abraham, not Noah, not the apostles, no one, but the Lamb, the Lamb of God, seated at the right hand of God and highly exalted, so much so that worship and adoration is given just as much to Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, as it is to God, that really ought to tell you that the man whom God has raised up and highly exalted is himself very God. 
It would otherwise be inconceivable that you would have such a heavenly scene with Jesus seated at the right hand of God, receiving all that praise and adoration. The fact is, that fact is made clear elsewhere, by the way. For example, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he also had a heavenly vision, just like John did. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Lord with capital letters, Jehovah or Yahweh. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain or two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Jehovah God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then a few verses on from that, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. This is the people, they'll hear, but they won't understand. Make the heart of this people fat, so as not to heed the words of the prophet. That's what it means. They won't heed, they won't believe, they won't understand. And make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Well, that was all in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 6, that heavenly vision where Isaiah saw Jehovah seated in his temple. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle John gave an explanation of that same passage in John chapter 12, when he made it clear that the Lord God, whom Isaiah saw in that vision, and whom the angels worshipped and adored, is Jesus. That was a vision of Jesus. Jehovah God. Jehovah Jesus. And that not everyone has believed or will believe the gospel of Christ concerning his sacrificial death for their sins or for sins and his resurrection from the dead. It will fall on deaf ears. By the grace of God, Christians are people who do believe and are saved. Verse 21 again. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. The Christian hope and faith is in God who raised Jesus up from the dead to sit at his right hand in heavenly glory. This is now the third time that the Apostle Peter has mentioned hope. The other two times were in verse 3, where he spoke about a lively hope, a living hope. And then in verse 13, where he spoke about having a hope with regards to the second coming of Christ. Hope refers to what? It refers to a desired future outcome. People hope for things that will or will not happen. 
We all hope for various things, but what about when death comes? Do you hope for anything beyond the grave? Do you have a hope that goes beyond the the grave and reaches up to heaven where Jesus now is? Verse 21 refers to faith as well as hope. Faith is all about trust and what your hope is built on. You can hope for various things, but is it built on sand, that hope, or is it built on something solid? The hope that the Christians have is built on a solid rock whose name is Jesus, the Son of God. Christians are people who have a certain hope of heavenly glory. Their faith is in God. We see that in that verse there, in verse 21. Faith is in God who raised Jesus up from the dead and highly exalted Jesus. Equally, their faith is in Jesus. As I've just said, he is the Son of God. You can't have faith in the Father and not the Son. There's no sense in that. Our faith as Christians is in the Father and in his Son. Just as eternal life in the Bible is defined as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You can't know one without knowing the other. And we thank God the Holy Spirit for applying all this truth to the hearts and minds of believers. So, uh, not only do Christians have faith in God, they have their faith in Jesus who was delivered for their transgressions and raised again for their righteousness or their right standing before God the Father. Their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. They dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's have a look at verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. The purification that is spoken of in verse 22 is a moral cleansing that starts at the time of conversion when you first become a Christian. That purification, it's not just an outer purification, it's inward, inwards, we see it's in the soul. And that happens when by the grace of God, a person first obeys the truth. In other words, they believe the gospel of Christ. I tell you, the biggest act of disobedience for anyone in here is if they leave this world having disobeyed the gospel of Christ. That's the most serious sin of all. Disobeying the gospel of Christ. Christians obey the gospel. In other words, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are purified at their conversion when they become Christians. And that process continues throughout their pilgrimage as uh, in this world. It's an ongoing process of purification. And the Holy Spirit he, he carries out that work of puri- purification through the word of God, which is truth. And that purification is seen in an unfeigned love for the brethren. What does unfeigned mean? 
It means unhypocritical. That's actually what it means. It's genuine love, not a hypocritical love. The subject of love for the brethren comes up time and again in the Bible. I'm only too aware that I speak about the love for the brethren so often, and that is because I find it so often in the Bible. Suffice to say that a genuine Christian faith is seen in unfeigned love. It's not invisible. Faith is not invisible. It's seen in uh, an unhypocritical love for the brethren. That kind of love is much more than a warm Christian smile and a few soft words when Christians meet up on a Sunday. As, as nice as those gestures are, and they really are nice. Nice to see a smiley face and have a few words of encouragement. But unfeigned love goes way beyond that. A genuine love for the brethren that comes from having a purified soul in obedience to the truth can be seen in acts of compassion for one another. That actually means doing something. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in judgment, he will say to those whose faith and hope is in God, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered and ye gave me meat, gave me food. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. That's a lot of doing there, isn't it? A lot of stuff being done by Christians. And then Jesus said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it to me. Very important that. Whatever you do for other Christians in unfeigned love, you're doing as unto Jesus. Clearly, it's not just Christians who do those acts of compassion. There are many people who have no faith in Jesus who put Christians to shame when it comes to doing things, nice things for other people. But without that faith in Jesus in place, without having obeyed the gospel of Christ and received Jesus as their saviour from sin, all their acts of righteousness count as filthy rags before, their, before God. They count for nothing. Why is that? Because they're not doing what they do as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't believe in him. They don't belong to him. It counts for nothing. However, as people whose souls are purified through faith in Jesus, Christians inevitably love one another. It's inevitable. And they love one another with unfeigned love. A saving faith in Jesus equates to having unfeigned love for the brethren. The two are inseparable. So what that means really is you don't actually get up and think, I must, I must be obedient to where it says in Matthew 25 there about visiting people who are sick or in prison and I must do that because then I can tick that box and you know, I'm doing it as unto Jesus. It doesn't work that way. 
It's, it's about being a Christian. It's about being a new creature in Christ. I, I, I think if you're a Christian, you know exactly what I mean. Let's have a look at verses 23 to 25. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Is your hope and your faith, in, if it's in God, who raised Jesus from the dead, you are born again. You're born again Christian. Everyone is born by natural means, but then there are those who are born again. Born for a second time. We saw it in John chapter 1 earlier. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This means that God employs Sorry, the means that God employs to raise dead sinners up to spiritual life is what we're told there clearly. It's the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. As such, the gospel of Christ, which is the word of God, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. There's power in the word of God. Power to raise people up to spiritual life. This it means that God employ the means rather that God employs to raise people up is the word of God and that word is the is salvation. I don't know about you but me how did I become a Christian? How was I born again? It's because I heard the gospel. I read it for myself. I was there reading things in the Bible and by the grace of God, believing it and wanting to know more. And my Jesus is the Jesus who has declared himself and his father in the Bible. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. The time now is when people will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So are you one of those people? Do you hear the voice of the Son of God in the Scriptures, the Word of God? Because not everyone hears. Some will perceive, they won't hear. Some will um, simply won't understand. Their hearts will be made gross, fat. It goes in one ear and out the other. Blessed are you if when you hear the word of God, you believe and you are saved from your sins. Therefore, dear Christian, never underestimate the power of the gospel of Christ. In, instead of resorting to gimmicks, worldly illustrations, 
anecdotes, juggling acts, singing, tap dancing, various other forms of entertainment when you are witnessing to unregenerate people who are to all intents and purposes dead in their trespasses and sins, prayerfully proclaim the word of God. Don't rely on your wisdom, on the wisdom of men. It's the word of God that raises people up to life. The word of God, which speaks of Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, highly exalted. It speaks of Jesus who will come again. Proclaim the word of God. Just as there is a second death, there is all, sorry, a second birth being born again. There is a second death. The final judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again is described in chapter 20 of Revelation and in verses 14 and 15 it is written, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. You can see that in Revelation chapter 20, the second death. What that means is if you are only ever born once, in other words, naturally born from your mother, then you will die twice. If you're just born once, you will die twice. The first time will be when you die peacefully in your sleep as a very old person or when you get um, hit by a car or when you get murdered or you die of some dreadful disease. That will be the first death. But then you will die for a second time on the day of judgment when you are cast into the lake of fire and punished with everlasting punishment. However, If you are born twice, born naturally, as we all are, but also born again by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, you will not die twice. You can only die once. And and if Jesus comes in the meantime, then you won't even die once, will you? If Jesus was to come today and you're a Christian, you won't even taste death once. But if you die before Jesus comes again, that's it for you. You die once and then you enter into the presence of your great God and Saviour. Finally, we've considered repentant sinners having their souls purified by obedience to the gospel of Christ. They are people who believe in God, who raised Jesus from the dead. They have a hope in God that reaches up to heaven. They believe that Jesus is now highly exalted and that he is seated in heavenly glory. They have an unfeigned love for fellow Christians, a love that is more than just kind words. They are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. They will only die once or not at all if Jesus comes before they die for the first time. Is that you? Will Jesus one day say to you, come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
are you trusting in Jesus as a repentant sinner? That's what it all comes down to at the end of the day. May each one of us be people who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Turn to 432. A ruler once came to Jesus by night to ask him the way of salvation and light. The master made answer in words true and plain, ye must be born again.